Um, we're starting a new series. Pastor Rick is gone, as many other, I think a few other people from your church as well, to Japan. And so we're starting the Advent or Christmas looking series, looking at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of different people from the New Testament story. So today we'll be doing that through Joseph. Um, but well, before we do that, let's ask for God's help so that he can meet us here at this place. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we are grateful for so many things. We're grateful for beautiful weather. We're grateful for um, a season of Thanksgiving. We're grateful for the ability to think through the coming of Jesus. We're grateful uh, for the gospel. And so we pray that where in our hearts this gratitude does not rest is not found, that you would, through the Spirit, produce in us gratitude. Um, give us the ability uh, to, to meditate and think on, even th at this very time, the importance of Jesus stepping out of heaven and coming to this realm as an infant. Um, uh, even as I've been thinking about this this upcoming days as I've been uh, thinking through, I've just realized how frequently I take for granted the gospel. I take for granted the incarnation of the Son of God. So I pray that you'd help us with that. Uh, it's such a big idea that we need your help, obviously, through the Spirit, and we rely on that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So obviously, with Thanksgiving just ending, we, as a culture and as a Christian set, we start looking towards Christmas. My guess is, by show of hands, if you unpacked Christmas decorations in the last few days, raise your hands. Yeah, many of us, that's sort of the tradition. Some families are really serious about this, right? You cannot unpackage anything before Thanksgiving, but it has to happen right after. And there's all, but, and even the, my guess is this stuff was, was, was all the stuff put up in the last week? Was this all here last Sunday? Okay, yeah, so this is pretty common, right, that right after Thanksgiving, moving into early December, we begin thinking through Christmas, pulling out things to remind ourselves of Christmas, things to remind ourselves, and at this point is when many of our family traditions might vary, and many of our family ways that we do things, and as we get married and we incorporate different things from one family to another. So I've decided to share with you guys, we have one piece of Christmas decoration that's a little bit out of place up here, and this is because it's from my home. So I don't know where we got this, but this is a um, nativity scene that is not breakable, which is always nice when you have young kids in the house. So this is like a quilted nativity scene, and I'm going to show you what one of the traditions we do as a family, and I think this must have started very organically um, from the time that my kids were very young. We've got various characters here. Um, some of them are in pretty bad shape. I noticed the beards of the wise men are particularly pitiful looking these days. Um, and so what we, what we began doing at some point in time, our, my, my children are all teenagers at this point, um, but we began reading the various parts of the Christmas story um, with, I can't ever tell, the shepherd from Joseph is always a tricky, the shepherd has the longer stick. That's the only way you can tell shepherd from Joseph. So what we would do, and this is, of course, the manger, or the, uh, yeah, this is the stable that falls apart. Okay, well, we'll just lay it there, we'll know what it is. At some point, we began 
reading through the various parts of the Christmas story that we know really well, starting in both early Luke, Luke 1, when the angel first comes to Mary, and then we go back to Matthew 1, where the angel comes to Joseph, and then we jump to Luke 2, the part, this part of the Christmas story that we're all very familiar with, and then we would jump back to Matthew where we get the wise men, so we could get all of the characters involved. And as we were reading it, I believe what must have happened in our family early on is our children as young, because these were playable, not like the breakable, would, would pull the figures out and actually play it out. And then it got to where we started feeding them lines, and it became really fun. And so even now, we still make them do it, even as teenagers, because it's become the family tradition. And I'm guessing at some point, 10 years from now, we'll have everyone gathered around, and they'll all be adults, and we'll be making them act out the lines. But the interesting part as we set up to think about Joseph is, we basically have four kids, so we sort of have divided them into four different parts to play. And there's a race for the better parts, and everyone tries to avoid the worse parts, right? Just like in any play, some parts are better than other parts. So we almost, I think last year we almost had to draw straws or pick numbers or something like that, because everybody, there's one character. So think about the, the passages that I just spoke through. Which character do you think gets drafted first? Which character has the most lines? Which character is in all the scenes of all of those passages? Mary is number two, so Mary gets second. Number one, without a doubt, is the angel. Think about it, right? The angel comes to Mary and speaks. The angel goes to Joseph and speaks. The angel goes to the shepherds and speaks, right? And because we, we actually read through the text, the angel has a lot of lines. The angel says a bunch to all of those different people. So by, I'd say 80% of the lines that we read as we do this are the angels. So whoever gets the angel is like, yes, got the angel, right? The angel is what you want. Second is always Mary. Mary doesn't have a stick. Mary's always number two. Number three typically is the shepherd. And I think that's primarily because you can do this action when they're scared. You can shake him a little bit. The kids like that, right? Don't be afraid. Oh, then they can stop being... And they have a line as well as they get to go to uh, let, let us go see if this is true, right? The wise men are always, even though they don't really have any lines or anything, but there's three of them and they get a, a camel, so that's pretty cool, right? So you're going to pick them above even the last character. So obviously you'll see where I'm going. Who's always last? Joseph. Try to sweeten the pot, we throw the donkey in with Joseph, they kind of go together. But Joseph is always the last character picked. Now, what we're going to do really quickly is we're going to look at our text that we're primarily going to be looking at today in Matthew. I'll talk about some of the Christmas passages from Luke as well. But the very first thing we want to see is when I read sort of the text where Joseph, the father of Jesus, is most prominent in Matthew 1... You're going to get a pretty good sense for why Joseph is picked last in our family's tradition. So I'm going to read for us. This is going to be the primary text that we'll look at. This is the one that you want to keep your finger in. We might, I'll reference, we might look at a couple of other places in Luke, early Luke, but Matthew 1 is the text that we're going to be looking at. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why is Joseph, even in the most important passage for Joseph, if you were acting out the role of Joseph, why would Joseph not be a very attractive character for my children at this point? What, what about Joseph in this passage jumps out as a character? No lines. No lines. In fact, in the entire Bible, Joseph has no lines. Obviously, He's communicative, right? He speaks at some point to say, I'm not going to divorce her, all this other stuff. But in the actual acting out of the passage, you have a soliloquy, right, by the angel. Here's what all is going to happen. It's in a dream, of course, but no response from Joseph. We'll set him here. We'll give him his due today. Make sure I got the right one. Yeah, that's the, that's the Joseph. I'd hate to pull a shepherd up. I think this is sort of instructive and very interesting that Joseph, even in the story of the birth of Jesus, is, is essentially a very minor character who is never represented as having any lines. You can go through and look through Luke, no lines. Later on, no lines. And we know that at some point, Joseph is out of the picture, most likely through death. So when Jesus' adult ministry is in place, Joseph's not there, probably because he's passed away. So Joseph is this interesting character in our biblical narrative. Not only does he not have any lines, think about this, he's not even the most famous Joseph in the Bible, right? you got an Old Testament Joseph. And when, no one has made a Broadway show about this Joseph. No one went to that Broadway play thinking, oh, I thought we were going to be talking about the father of Jesus, right? It's just no one was confused about that. So Joseph, his name, I did, I did some very analytical research. Joseph's name is mentioned in the New Testament about 15 times. And by analytical research, I put it in my phone app and searched Joseph and, and counted how many times it shows up. Joseph Arimathea shows up about 12 times, eight or, eight or 12. It's kind of hard for me to, I, like I said, it wasn't real, it wasn't highly detailed. So he shows up a little bit more than, than, this, than the other Joseph in the New Testament, but Joseph in the Old Testament is named about 250 times. So we have this, this sort of minor figure who has no lines, who's not even the most famous Joseph in the Bible, and yet we want to spend today to think through what would Christmas, what would the birth of Jesus have been like through the eyes of Joseph? So even though he's a minor character and even though he doesn't have any lines, we do learn quite a bit about this man. So I want to point out, first of all, here, here's where we're going. I'm going to point out three things we can learn about Joseph from, from what limited biblical data that we have. 
Then we're going to sort of extrapolate a little bit and sort of say, okay, well, what other things do we imagine might have been true of Joseph? And then finally, we're going to sort of land on some theological principles that we can learn from this passage. So the first thing, the first thing we learn about Joseph is he's a model of quiet obedience for us. He doesn't have any lines, but it's almost to his credit that he doesn't have any lines, because in the passage that we read here, what happens? He's in a dream. The angel says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to do. Something odd happened to the woman you're about to marry. Don't worry about it. Still marry her. It's all in God's hands. And my favorite part about the passage that reveals this quiet obedience of Joseph is 24. When he woke from sleep, he did as the Lord commanded him. No grumbling recorded, no questioning recorded, no, oh, really recorded? No, oh, man, this stinks. Recorded, right? Just sort of like, I like to think that he might have a line right here, and it's just like, okay. Marrier, okay. Right? It's just like, that's, that's just, it, gets, it feels that that's, and then we get the same quiet obedience in Joseph later, right? If you just flip your page over, later after the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2, in 13, right, you remember this part of the story that uh, the angel comes back to Joseph once again in a dream and says, rise and take the child and his mother in verse 13, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Verse 14, and he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt. Okay. Okay. Quiet obedience. And it's to his credit. Remember Zechariah? Remember what Zechariah says when the angel comes to him? How can this be? Remember what the angel does? Oh, you've doubted. You can't talk now for a year. Joseph has this sense. There's something about him that even though in a dream, right, it's not even really an actual angel visitation. In the same sense that, that Mary gets, Zechariah gets. Even Mary has a question, right? How can this be? I'm still a virgin. It, her question must not have come from doubt because she doesn't get the same treatment that Zechariah gets, right? His question's almost the exact thing. How can this be? We're too old. How could we be having a child? But his question must have come from some sort of doubting uh, because the angel actually says, because you doubted in your heart. Mary's question must not have come from doubt. must have been just more from astonishment and willingness to obey. How can this be? But Joseph is never even asking, how can this be? Joseph rises and obeys. Both times. And it's a beautiful model for us of quiet obedience and submission to the will of God. Because the things he's agreeing to, I think we could agree, if you really think about them, wouldn't be all that fun. Being brought into what looks to be sinful behavior on the part of his betrothed wife, and then later on having to move his family a long distance to Egypt just because you had a dream? Right? These are, these are not easy tasks. These are difficult, life-changing tasks that your entire community would look at you differently for but his response is quiet obedience. All right, I'll do it. I love that. I love that image of Joseph, of it's almost deliberate to me that he doesn't have any lines. Because what we're being presented as is this man who's willing to obey what God would have him to do. Without question, without complaint, without any whining. 
at least recorded for us. The second thing we see is that Joseph is a just man. This is explicitly stated for us in this passage, with the example being, with the, with the parlay being, that he decided he did not want to put Mary to shame, right? So verse 19, and her Joseph, I'm sorry, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I think most of us are familiar with the cultural standards of the day that a young lady who's not yet married, who has become pregnant, would have all kinds of things that could happen, and he would be the one who would bring the charge against her, right? He's by far the offended, wronged party, the husband, the husband-in-waiting, right? So, so Mary's going to have a baby. One of two things has happened, Joseph. Either you have broken the law and had sex with Mary before your marriage, or she's broken the law and become an adulterer. Those seem to be, in our own worldly logic, the only two options. So Joseph has a decision to make. What are you going to do, Joseph? What are you going to do that your wife, betrothed wife, so that the betrothal process is they were committed to each other, more serious than an engagement, they were committed to each other fully, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. And what we're told here is Joseph decided to take a more gracious route of response to Mary. And the, the reason we're given is, I think, actually sort of interesting, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly rather than make a spectacle of it, present her to maybe higher authorities. Right? I, I believe that it's even very likely that she could have been stoned to death, depending on where the... the, the uh, um, culturally at that particular moment what they were doing with we know at some point in the old testament that was exactly what would have happened and so joseph we see from joseph here his kindness the word just is an interesting word right the word just means given what they deserve <laughs> but joseph's just him being just his view of justice actually came with it a nice beautiful representation of grace and mercy what do we really see is we really see Joseph is the kind of man who loves the law of God, but he chose to apply it in this particular situation with grace and mercy. It's, an, it's a stark opposite example of what we see in the Pharisees later on in the life of Jesus, isn't it? The Pharisees thought themselves very just, but the Pharisees looked for every single opportunity to apply justice without mercy and without grace. And we see an example in John, right? A very similar sort of situation brought in. A woman caught in the act of sin. And the Pharisees are bringing her before Jesus. And the Pharisees are demanding justice without any mercy. And I feel like we see in Jesus' adult response something similar to Joseph's here. We see Jesus respond with grace and mercy. In fact, Jesus' life, no one got harsher words from Jesus than the Pharisees, right? I wonder, I, I just, this is the speculative part, right? I wonder if some of God's intentionality was to place Jesus into a family that had for it a model of a father 
who was balancing his love for the law alongside grace so that Jesus would see that in action as a young child. Maybe. The Bible is so hard to understand Jesus, right? It's so hard to understand the baby is God. It's so hard to understand God, Jesus, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience. That's hard to understand. But what if in God's wisdom, one of the ways in which he wanted Jesus, the human part of Jesus, to learn mercy was by watching a merciful father, which is what perhaps caused Jesus to react as strongly as he would against harsh, legalistic, bloodthirsty, justice-driven Pharisees who had no mercy. Maybe when he saw that, Jesus was able to say, I've seen a man who loves the law and is merciful. I grew up in his home. It can be joined together. So that when Jesus comes full of grace and truth, in some ways you wonder if maybe God in his providence wanted Jesus to learn that from Joseph. We do know that Joseph is that kind of a man. The third thing we know about Joseph from the text so we know that Joseph is quite obedient. He doesn't say many things, but, but he obeys. We know from this part that he's just, but he merges that with grace and mercy. And the third thing we see is going to come in Luke. If you want to flip over, if not, it's a story you're familiar with. This is the last scene in which we see Joseph. So later in Luke, Luke 2, later in Luke 2, in verse 41, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to reference it. I'm going to read one passage from it. In Luke 2, we have uh, this, the only scene in, we ha in the Bible that we have of Jesus' childhood is from Luke 2, whenever they, as a family and as a community, travel to Jerusalem, then they leave Jerusalem, and they're on the way back, and where's Jesus? We don't know where Jesus is. We've got to go back and find Jesus, right? And I love the wording of this, because it's, it's, it's complicated. Is my, I kept coming back to that, right? It's complicated. The relationship of Joseph as Jesus' father is complicated. Look in verse 46. So first, so you have Mary and Joseph both returning. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him in 45, looking for their son. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Here's where it gets interesting. 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I'm going to just pause on that word parents just for a second. Joseph is no doubt the parent of Jesus, even though very likely if we took a DNA test of Jesus, we wouldn't see any of Joseph's DNA in Jesus, right? If you ever, I don't know exactly what his DNA would look like, but... Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. That we can be clear of, according to Luke 2. When his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? <clears throat> Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. No doubt, father in play is Joseph. This is where it gets complicated. Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I don't think Jesus here is 
is slighting Joseph. Jesus is referring to God, the heavenly father, right? And I don't think this is Jesus' way of sort of poking a stick in his earthly father, but the word, the word play here is interesting, isn't it? Your father and I were looking for you. Joseph and I were nervous. And Jesus says, don't you know, I was in my father's house. It's a reminder of Jesus' divinity and his humanity both in the same passage. But the part that I like to think about this passage from, particularly for our perspective for today, is let's think about this passage from Joseph's perspective. What do we see about Joseph here? Joseph's doing all the things a good father does, right? I don't think Joseph cared that Jesus was not his biological child. I don't think that, like whenever Mary said, hey, we got to go back and find Jesus, I don't think Joseph says, hey, he's your kid, he's not mine, you go find him. I don't see that in the text, right? That's your problem, not my problem. No, in fact, what we see is Joseph doing all of the things an earthly father would do. Because that's the role that Joseph played in the life of Jesus, at least in the 12 years old. Maybe longer. We don't know. We don't know from this page where Joseph falls out of the story. It might have been when Jesus was 13. It might have been when Jesus was 29. All we know is at some point... Joseph is not a part of the story, but Joseph is a part of the story for the first 12 years of Jesus in this role of a caretaker, someone who's providing, someone who's taken upon himself the responsibility to remove his son from danger to go to Egypt. And this is where I think the speculation can occur. Okay, what kinds of things do we imagine Joseph might have done with Jesus during those 12 years. Well, they would be the things we would imagine any other father during this time period would have done with a son, including the apprenticeship, the working together, probably the playing together. Fathers play with their sons and their daughters, right? It's actually psychology. I'm not a professional psychologist. Um, My field is philosophy. So I read a little bit about this and I found it super interesting whenever I prepared something similar a couple years back and I looked back at it again last night and it's still the case. For the first like 50 or 60 years where psychology was studying parent-child relationships, they almost exclusively focused on the mother's relationship with the child. And then in like the 70s or the 80s, kind of late 70s, early 80s, a couple of people started saying, you know what, we're sort of leaving out an important player in this relationship. No one has studied the role of the father with the child and how that affects the child going forward, right? We've we've sort of like overplayed and maybe even de-emphasized the role of the father. And some people actually even look to that, that early part of psychology and even wonder if culturally that might not have held some responsibility for a diminished role of fatherhood, right? If there is psychological studies that only talk about the role of the mother, maybe it makes sense that in a culture that some of the men would say, well, if you're not even going to ask me about being a father, maybe it doesn't matter if I'm a father. And they start to study it again and go back with a closer eye to the role of a father with the child. And they found all kinds of things that children who had active fathers it counterbalanced really well. So you get the nurturing from the mother, and you get sort of this play, this active play, typically from your father. And they found that that active play, whether it's a male child or a female child, really helped the child have security and helped the child learn how to to be risk takers in a healthy way, right? 
Because the father's the one that's going to say, oh, yeah, they're in the backyard. What were they eating? Well, I guess they were eating sticks. I don't know. Well, how did you let them eat sticks? Oh, sticks never killed anyone or whatever else. So, fathers, I'm not giving you permission to, you know, to be absent-minded. But it's definitely true that in my family, at least both me growing up and in my own kids, that the father's the one who kind of can play. And every now and then the play can get a little bit aggressive, right? And every now and then the play ends up, with all four of my children, at some point play has turned into tears, and that's part of what the psychology is actually saying is, but that's good because then the child learns for someone to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to get so rough with you. I didn't know that tag was going to turn into trip and your face hit the floor. <laughs> well, I'm so sorry. Let me pick you up. Let me take you. Let me help you. And that's good for a child to learn. Okay, there's, there's sort of, there's, there's care even in that. I grew up in a cattle ranch in Oklahoma and my father we would go, when I was probably six or seven years old, we'd wake up every morning very early and we'd bottle feed calves that we were trying to raise. Calves that, that we had bought and some of them, had their, their mothers had died. And usually about once a week, my father thought it'd be a really good idea to tie his belt around the biggest calf and to put me on it for a bull ride. And they'd literally put it along the side and they'd open the kins and they'd slap it in the rear and it would, and I would, and, and, and one day, of course, I fell off like you would fall off of a calf when you're bull riding and smashed my face into something. And I think I landed in manure and ran home and told my mom. And of course, there was no bull riding after that because mom didn't know there was bull riding before that. But it's a good example, right? It's a good example of the kind of role that a father would have in, in play and in risk-taking, and an ability to say, hey, this, this is sort of, I can feel my world out. My daughter, who's now 16, who will be here for the second service, um, so I've already started. I was, I was, I was trying to determine if you can tell the story or not, because it's got a certain amount of shame for me, but you will enjoy it, and so we'll tell it anyway. Um, we grew up in, she grew up in Oklahoma, we lived in Oklahoma before we lived here, and when she was three, two or three, we would take her snow skiing, and she was a pretty good little skier, and there's nothing more that I loved than skiing with my kids when they were young, because I would, I, would, I had grown up skiing, so I would throw my poles away, and I'd get really little, short little skis, and just, you know, ski with them the whole time, and this really long run in New Mexico, in the mountains where we would go ski, had a lot of these, and so she would ski most of it by herself towards the end when she got really good, but there are a couple of places that were really flat, and you'd have to pull. Well, I didn't have any poles. So I'd literally have to pick her up and just carry her with my skis, and that was got tiring. So what I began to do was almost always leading up to that was a steep hill going down, and so I would take her, and I would put her between my legs, and we would both tuck, and we would see how much speed we could get to go down the hill so that we wouldn't have to pull across the flat. And as the day wore on, I got really cocky because we were really good at this, and it got to the point where we would just zip past people, like zzz, zzz, zzz. And I was so proud of like, oh, look at me and my three-year-old. We're just flying past all these people. You know what's going to happen. On the steepest hill, we're going the fastest we've ever gone. And it's going to happen at some point. Her skis got caught in mine. And not only did we fall, we fell and I landed on her and pressed her into the snow. And she's got blood coming out of her nose. And the exact people that we had passed now are skiing past us and thinking, what an idiot. Look what he did. Look what he did to his daughter. It, it was not a good thing to do. But there's something about that role of a father. And I bring those stories up to show conjecture tells us this is the kind of stuff 
that Joseph and Jesus would have done together, right? That the part of Jesus becoming this fully God, fully human, this, this incredible being is learning from his earthly father how to be a man, how to be a human, how to be someone who cares for people. My, my favorite part of the story is I don't think Joseph for those 12 years ever even thought much about this child is not my son. He does not have my DNA because he's just being a father. I have two sons. Neither of my sons have my DNA. They don't look much like me. They're, they're both Ethiopian. We adopted them seven years ago. They are 13 and 14 now. And they don't have much family resemblance to me at all. But in that way, I can resonate with Joseph. I don't think often, even though they don't even look like me, and they don't look like my biological daughters, I don't think very often, these, these are not my biological children. They've been in my family for eight years. They're my sons, just as much as my daughters are my daughters. And I respond to them as my sons. And it's exactly what we see with Joseph here, caring for Jesus as a good father. So at this point, if we stopped, we'd have, we'd have some interesting things. We'd have a nice little character study. We might even be able to walk off and say, hey, what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn to, to be humble. We can learn to be obedient. We can learn to be good fathers, right? We can learn that we need to, we need to, to, to be just and humble at the same time. But I'm always nervous. If the Bible turns into nothing other than sort of ethical tidbits, how to live your life better, then we're missing something deeper, aren't we? And I think even in this story, even in this passage, there's, there's some beautiful truths that we want to walk away with as well. So let's go back to Matthew 1. If you flipped over to Luke, let's go back to Matthew 1. And here's what I want to do for our last few minutes. I want to examine the message that the angel gave to Joseph. So I don't want to just examine Joseph's response and how Joseph was obedient and how Joseph uh, is, is in many ways uh, an exemplary human and father, I want to think about what is it that Joseph heard? And we're going to parse that out in our own lives for a few minutes. So this is all in verse 19, starting in 19. Verse 20, it says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, and there's three things that he's told, three, three utterances, essentially, three statements. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for, here's where it gets interesting, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, one. She will bear a son, he will call his name Jesus, that's two, and three, he will save his people from his sins. I'm going to focus on one and three. The first one is, whatever has happened to Mary is from the Holy Spirit. It's the first thing that Joseph's told. There is incredibly important and thick and rich theological history being told right there. And really quickly, I mean, this is not going to be new to any of us. We're all kind of familiar with it. Right before the New Testament, there is what we call a, a time period that we call the intertestamental period of about 500 years. And during that 500 years, there's nothing written, nothing contributed to the canon. There's no prophets in Israel. And if you asked an Israeli, if you asked a member why there was no new prophets, why there were no new books being contributed to the canon, what they all would have said was, the Holy Spirit has departed Israel. That was, 
That was, the, that was the understanding. And if you think about the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant, it's very different than our relationship with the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, right? Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is post-Pentecost, where we all have the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's our guarantor of our faith. But in the Old Testament, you have even David praying what in one of the Psalms? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people for certain tasks. And at some points it might leave that person and go to another person. And one of the tasks that the Holy Spirit would come to was to the prophets to give them the words to give to the children of Israel from God. And at some point, God stopped revealing himself to his people. Can you imagine how scary that would have been? That if up until that point, you had a holy man who spoke for God. Now, often they were ignored and killed and not paid attention to, but still yet conceptually, right? There's a man in our midst who speaks for God because he has the Holy Spirit. But now we're in a new generation. The Holy Spirit's departed Israel. We have no more man from God to give us this word. That sets the drama that we miss. Now, I think of it when I read Luke 2 and Zechariah is, is told something similar. That in both instances, these are God-fearing Israel, Israelite men who would have recognized when the angel says, the angel of the Lord said, David, don't fear to take Mary, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph would have immediately recognized, wait, 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 wait. The Holy Spirit hadn't been around these parts for 500 years. What's going on? This is a really big deal. You see how big of a deal this is? You mean the Holy Spirit's back? I thought the Holy Spirit had departed Israel. So you're telling me, angel, in my dream, the Holy Spirit's back, and the Holy Spirit has something to do with what's happened to Mary. It's huge. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's something that literally the people of Israel have been praying for the return of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately the return of the Messiah. So that's the first thing. The Holy Spirit's back at work. The third thing, the second one is name him Jesus. The third one is he's going to save his people from their sins. I don't know what Joseph's response was to that part of the statement. We do know throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that most of the Israelites didn't really feel like that was their greatest problem. They felt like what they wanted the Messiah to rescue them from, their greatest problem in their mind was political, right? What we really want the Messiah to do is not to save us from our sins. What we want the Messiah to do is to save us from Rome, to bring us a kingdom now, a political kingdom now. I don't know if that was what was going on in Joseph's mind or not. But I think it could have been tempting, right, to say he's going to save his people from his sins. What about saving us from Rome? What about setting up our kingdom? What about bringing us what we believe the Messiah is to bring us, which ultimately the Messiah will? So I just want to close with this, just for us to think through the two applications from these two parts of the statement for us. The first one, and I, I, I almost reworded this as I was writing it, but I thought, no, this is the best way to word it. Jesus is a big deal, right? Jesus is a big deal. And that's exactly what Joseph gets reminded of. The Holy Spirit's been gone for 500 years. The Holy Spirit's done a miraculous thing in Mary. Jesus is a big deal. And I do think that some of us, 
primarily those of us who have been in church all of our life, that's me, probably many of you, not all of you, we can just become immune to the idea of how big of a deal Jesus' coming is. So let's all help each other during this season. Let's remind each other, hey, this Advent season, this reminding of ourselves of the coming again of Jesus, let's remind ourselves how big of a deal that is. Let's remind ourselves of the hopelessness of the world without Jesus. Let's remind ourselves of the hopelessness of ourselves without Jesus. Let's help each other with that. Jesus is a big deal. Let's not forget that. Let's allow ourselves as we ramp up into this season to, to let to marinate in that a little bit. Spend some time meditating. Spend some time uh, awakening your heart so you can accept this colossal event of Jesus coming to earth. And the second thing we can take is that the biggest problem you have has been solved in Jesus. Your sins have been taken. If you've believed in Jesus, and at this point, I don't, in a groom this size, maybe some of you haven't, some of you haven't, but if you've come to Jesus and you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, your greatest problem has been taken away. That is not to say that what you think is your greatest problem is taken away, because for many of us, that's not true, right? For many of us, we think our greatest problem is fill in the blank. Financial problems, loss of job, health issue, uh, m uh, mental health issue, whatever it is. Family that, that, that hates each other and we have to get back together with them at Christmas. Whatever else it is. Children who have, who have, who have left the faith maybe and left our homes. And those, I'm not trying to minimize those. Those are painful. Those are tragic. Those are heartbreaking. But it's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that before Jesus you stood in rebellion to God as a sinner shaking your fist in God's face. And Jesus came to remove that sin and just like we're told in Joseph, to take, save his people from their sins. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we do thank you for saving us from our sins if there's people here that haven't trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would, through your spirit, open their eyes even now and awaken them uh, to the need to trust Jesus. Um, God, I pray that this Christmas season you'd help us to see, through the eyes of Joseph and the other uh, biblical characters that we're going to be looking at, how big of a deal Jesus is and how glorious it is that we can rest with our sins forgiven because of his work on the cross for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.